You're listening to Steve Dace On Demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Friday. Welcome to Blaze Media Live and On Demand. This is the Steve Day Show. That would be me. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. We are joined in our first hour by our good friend, talk show host, Shannon Joy. Uh, we would love to know what you think about what we think. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. And you can let us know via the SteveDace.com inbox. Email the program, steve at stevedace.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. And we will be getting to some of the feedback that you have sent us to that inbox coming up in the second hour of the program. But first, it's time for the Dace Group. With the tip of the cap to the late great John McLaughlin, we have completely ripped off his concept, his graphics, and his imaging and music. But John has passed on now, so I don't think he'll complain. Let's get to issue one. The passing of a president. Late last Friday night, the announcement was made. George H.W. Bush had passed away. He was the 41st president, former CIA director, and a World War II veteran. He was given a state funeral on Wednesday. We're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that dad is hugging Robin and holding mom's hand again. Coverage and reaction of the former president's death varied from lies. Contrast between that and the tough decisions he made, John Meacham referring to that tough budget decision which did set the stage for years and years of prosperity. To boorishness, as this AP tweet illustrates, to flat-out petulance. You know, he, he's not one to mend fences too, too readily. I think he's doing this because he feels he has to do it. And I'm also assuming that General Kelly has had a big hand in it. If you're looking for any unifying moments in this moment in our political climate, this week left you disappointed. Let's get to the first question. Uh, what stood out to you? I'm just going to ask it open-ended without leading. Find out where everybody's at on this. What stood out to you the most about the coverage of the passing of former President George H.W. Bush? Todd, I'll start with you. Aaron, splendid job there. I think you nailed uh, with your sentiment there at the end. Unfortunately, as powerful as President uh, George W. Bush's speech was as a as a son, um, mostly uh, it was disconcerting for me. The most disconcerting thing uh, by far was the 
Zapruder film analysis, uh, as Steve uh, put it, of the Trump slash ex-president's front row. There was no political analysis to be had there. There were no zingers. Nobody did anything wrong, and that includes Hillary Clinton. And everybody just jumped on board with their normal Twitter stupidity and snark and just had to have at it. And it's deeply depressing. We clearly can't have nice things. Because if you find in that moment, and it was a pretty small moment, an opportunity uh, for political points, um, shame on you. Shannon. Uh, What stood out to me was the amount of time uh, spent devoted by, uh, you know, political news outlets covering the event. You know, the passing of a president is something that is sad. And it's something that I think should be covered and should be discussed um, in regards to his legacy. But there's a lot going on in Washington, D.C. today. And it really amazes me. Uh, The other thing that surprised me was, uh, I I guess, how distraught everyone on Capitol Hill is, because apparently uh, you can't have a, a a funeral for a president and also legislate. And so what they've done, at least, among our GOP leaders in Washington, D.C., is use this as an excuse to push back uh, the budget fight. And so they now have postponed it, passing a continuing re- resolution to fund the government. And they're postponing that budget battle until December 21st. And I can assure you, when uh, Americans are not paying attention, this is when we will get our legislative lumps of coal this year. And I think we're going to be looking at a massive uh, budget, debt and deficit galore, funding all of Obama-era policies, plus a potential DACA fix from Lindsey Graham, plus uh, potentially a massive criminal justice deform bill, which we uh, lovingly call jailbreak. And so, you know, it's important to honor the legacy of George W. Bush and discuss it. But uh, the the hundreds, if not thousands of hours of fighting and, and political coverage um, to me is especially for for, you know, news and information. I mean, this is the time when we need to be really watching these legislators, this is when they pull shenanigans. And so it was really the the amount of time that was spent, I thought, was a little excessive. That's a good point to consider. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about it. Uh, the, the last time we had a president pass, was it Reagan in 2004? It's been, yeah, and, I think and, that's right. I think it was in like June of 2004. And there were, I'm trying, if, you know, cable news was not, what it is now um i mean it it, it had it was strong but it, it it wasn't as partisan divided msnbc still had guys like alan keys host shows um cnn was still considered a somewhat legitimate news source yeah actually fox probably stood out the most as the most blatantly partisan because it was kind of doing the the uh we report you decide uh you know conservative perspective on mainstream news I, I remember full coverage of Reagan's state funeral. I remember full coverage of Reagan's uh, in, internment at uh, at the Reagan ranch. I remember that. And Michael uh, giving a very tear-filled speech. What were you going to say about that, Aaron? Gerald Ford. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, was, I just looked it up. Yeah. I think it was Ford. Ford passed away since then. In 06. Yeah. In 06. All right. So <laughs> then did we see anything... I'm trying to remember. We still would not, you know, MSNBC was full-fledged progressive now. It made that, that kind of transition uh, or was in the midst of it in 06. 
A lot has changed since then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm trying to do this math, I hadn't considered previously the point Shannon made. And so the reason we're kind of doing this math on the fly is, is this unique? Have we seen anything like this? And I guess what I'm asking is, let's, for now, let's assume Shannon's correct, just for the sake of this point, that this was an oversaturation of coverage. Would the reason behind the oversaturation be that we have a different cable news culture than we had in, in Ford's passing in 06, or because everybody wanted to use this as an opportunity to essentially uh, club Trump and use this as the takeoff point uh, to, to feed the animals, or is it a mixture of both here? What, what do you think on that, Todd? Well, it, it's it's the same old oversaturation of coverage. I mean, Shannon's right in the broad sense. I I think this is a unique opportunity uh, with a, a specific president to get beyond party politics and, and uh, try to address the shared humanity. That's why I don't mind delving into this on... A, yeah, we had no Facebook. We had no Twitter yep. in 2006. Uh, yep. But Shannon is actually, exactly right in the broadest sense. There's always an, in this media culture an over-exaggeration of one thing to to kind of get away from what's being done uh, on another level. She's dead right about that. Aaron? Yeah, I, I, th- I was going to go to the, the Twitter thing and, and social media, how it, um, whatever the, the mainstream media is doing, um, the broadcast mass media is doing, um, how it just amplifies it, and it's it becomes an echo chamber, and it just gets amplified and amplified. It's just fuel on the fire. I think that's one thing. I, I th- also think that the name Bush in this day and age, after having a couple of presidents named George Bush, uh, I think it brings out the uh, some of the worst caricatures from both sides to foist upon um, to foist upon this person just because of of that last name, uh, if that makes sense. So I think yeah. that has something to do with it as well. But as far as my overall reaction, it's similar to Todd's. Just I'll put it this way though: the inability or unwillingness for most people to just say nothing. Always have to have a hot take. Always have to be. Um, always have to be uh, commenting on what, what we're seeing before your eyes. Always have to be saying something. Always have to be uh, just belching all over or you know vomiting all over our social media accounts. What happened to just being able to say nothing at all? You know, the very first, the very first uh, thing that I learned in college, very very first day, very first. It was a uh, let's say a Monday morning. Would have been a Monday morning speech class. In college, very first thing, Johnny Tremaine, I think was the name of the guy, Robert Tremaine, the name of the professor, very first thing he taught us in this communications class, only speak when you have something to say that advances the conversation. All we want to do right now, as similar to what Todd was saying, we just want to, we're just looking for opportunities, looking for opportunities to own the other side, whoever that is, or put our hot takes, I'm guilty of this, you're guilty of this, anybody who's on social media actively, I think has probably been guilty of this at some point, and that says a lot about our humanity, that we just don't, we just, we cannot step back, it's like when we're in front of a screen, we just can't step back and see the big picture, and do I really need to say this? Most of the time, that answer is probably no. Hmm. Shannon, your thoughts on Todd and uh, Aaron's thoughts on uh, your observation? 
Well, you know, I, I agree with Aaron and the, the strategy I employ, you know, in this specific situation and also with the passing of John McCain, uh, George H.W. Bush and John McCain, I disagree politically on virtually everything they've ever done, <laughs> every legislation they've ever furthered. I mean, there were so many policy disagreements. And so, uh, you know, with the passing of George H.W. Bush, I think I mentioned it once uh, this week in my political coverage. I don't have a lot of good things to say about him as, from a policy perspective. I'm sure he was a very good man. He lived in a, an extraordinary life. And uh, it's sad when, when someone passes. And so my strategy in this situation is really just to shut my mouth and focus on you know my my main goal which is educating as many americans as i possibly can about the discernible policy outcome the legislative outcomes coming out of washington dc which frankly are are mean more to americans um you know the passing of george hw bush is is you know going to is not going to affect the lives of regular americans but my viewers and, and my listeners, every single page of policy that comes out of Washington, D.C., that is signed by this president and put into place and into in, in law affects our lives, our children's lives, our, the amount of money we bring home in a paycheck, the cost of my washer or dryer in terms of tariff policies, uh, education and common core. I mean, all of these policies that mirror President Obama's policies that actually mirrored George W. Bush's policies, they continue to march along. And, and so I try to train my eye on that and stick to the facts as best I can. And when I don't have something nice to say, I'm just not going to say anything at all. <laughs> all right, real quick, we have some breaking news regarding uh, the Bush-Trump uh, connection as we were on the air today. The president has announced former George H.W. Bush Attorney General uh, William Barr will be his nominee to succeed Jeff Sessions full-time. As attorney general. So this was a position that uh, William Barr held. It was under the first president, uh, Bush. We're talking 1991, 1992, like a quarter century ago. Um, anybody have any quick thoughts on this nomination one way or the other, Todd? Why? There's a thought. Uh, I, Trump doesn't even know what this means yet, so I can't even begin to know what it means yet. I mean, other than maybe uh, an ode to the past and this being somehow foolproof in the immediate future of an analysis, I, I don't know. I, I absolutely believe uh, the Donald Trump I used to know is fully capable of, in reaction to being told he wasn't kind or nice enough to George H.W. Bush and the family this week, nominating his former attorney general. Right, for attorney. that's as likely as I, anything I absolutely else, believe sure. that. It, now, I'm not saying that is what happened. I think it is, but it's just as possible that happened yeah. at, a, at 5 a.m. On, uh, on the Golden Throne as it is that this is something they've been working on for seven weeks and they just- Oh, they haven't been working on this for seven weeks. I, no way. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it, now. I would tend to agree with that. Exit question, what, word, what one word or phrase best describes President George H.W. Bush's legacy to you, Aaron? I want to put some context on this because I want this is how I, I choose to remember him a hero because of his service in the military. Todd, all that is true. But just considering how he came off of eight years of Reagan, uh, I, I would say at the end of the day, it's probably missed opportunity to continue that forward. Shannon. Progressive. Issue two, the failing standard. 
The Weekly Standard was started back in 1995 by Bill Crystal and Fred Barnes. At its peak, it had a circulation of over 100,000 and is widely considered the birthplace of neoconservatism. But in the last few years, it's been faltering. And this week, stories flew about its impending doom. A CNN business report, quoting numerous sources familiar with the matter, said, quote, The magazine's precarious position comes after its leadership spent months searching for a buyer, the people told CNN. The people explained that the Weekly Standard's leadership had butted heads with Media DC, the current publisher of the magazine, and that the two parties had agreed to allow editor-in-chief Stephen Hayes to search for a new owner. However, Media DC recently informed the Weekly Standard's leadership that the company was no longer interested in a sale. First question, the downfall of the Weekly Standard says what? About the state of so-called conservative media. Aaron, I shortchanged you last time, so I'll start with you this time. Go ahead, sir. Oh, it's all good. Um, I, I think it says uh, conservative media. Let's start by defining our terms. Um, conservative first, we don't know what that is. And media second, is media journalism? Is it issue advocacy? We don't know that. So based on the fact that we don't even know how to def define conservative media, I think it says everything about conservative media because this is following it to its logical conclusion. This is what happens when you do straight up, um, I, I guess, advertising for a very, very limited in scope um, audience. I think that's really what happened to the Weekly Standard because if, if we did, Steve, if, if on this show – the only thing that we did every day uh, was, I don't know, poke fun at Donald Trump or make fun of him or, um, you know, do whatever with Donald Trump. Or the only thing we did every day was just follow immigration, immigration, immigration for two hours. Or we just fought. My point is we, we're not you're not doing that and you're expecting to get a large audience at all. Now, when it happens to be the Weekly Standard, whose chief issue, it seemed like, was criticizing Donald Trump. And calling itself a right of center magazine, you're severely limiting any opportunity that you have to reach a broader audience. That doesn't mean that on this show that we try to get a lot of uh, issues or suck up to anybody to um, just you know sell out essentially to get a larger audience. I think anybody watching this knows that that's not what we're about. But we do talk about worldview and a lot of other issues as well, so that we can reach a broader audience. So. As much as I want to say this is just about haha, uh, -ha, these uh, anti-Trump and uh, neocons and and uh, you know small p progressives at the Weekly Standard, they blew up. It's just about a business reality in media, especially with with it when it's old media like uh, magazine and and just text journal journalism not adapting with the times. You're putting yourself at an even larger disadvantage. I kind of liken this in some ways to ESPN and how its target audience didn't really want to hear about politics. The Weekly Standard, as much as neocon as it is, and it's never been as conservative as I would say I am, or maybe you are, Steve, um, it's basically insulting its potential audience. And I think the same thing that happened to CNN or ESPN, I should say, I think that kind of happened uh, to, 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 the, to the Weekly Standard. And we're seeing the fruits of that right now. Yeah, they, they created this odd dynamic where they went after Trump on his character concerns, which are legion, um, but then they seemingly would criticize him from the left when he did stuff that his base actually yeah. liked. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I, I don't know 
how, what the readership is for that because you it's it, that's why I drew the analogy and we talked about it earlier this week to evangelical churches that decided that the the way to to reach the next generation was to become more like Oprah. Well, the problem I you're going to have with that, and it's why those churches always implode. They, 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 the the further you depart from orthodoxy, the more your attendance goes down within American evangelicalism every time. And the reason why is because you're now giving people something they can get somewhere else without the cost of freight that you're asking of them. Meaning, I can just tune into Oprah, and she might give me a car. You you want me to get up at seven eight a.m. on a Sunday when I'd rather sleep in, and then you get to pass a plate and make me feel like I got to put something in it when I don't feel like it. When I can just sit at home at the in the Lazy Boy at four o'clock in the afternoon and watch Oprah reruns anytime I want and get the exact same message. So I mean, if I wanted if I wanted uh, if I wanted to hit Trump on his character concerns and then attack him from the left on policy, I have seven thousand outlets to do that with, don't I? Mm-hmm. So what's my niche? I don't I don't understand who the what the target audience. So when so so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hit Trump on his character concerns, and then I'm gonna tell him he needs to apologize to Mexico, like Fred Barnes didn't we talk when we shared his piece yesterday. I I don't know who the target demo for that is. What the audience is? What's your TikTok? Uh, I think it's a sign. It's uh, relatively uh, healthy and uh, nimble for uh, several uh, reasons. It's you know it's being you, it, you should be principled, but it's also realistic about uh, uh, market forces. And most importantly, and I mentioned this earlier this week, this is a sign uh, that uh, listen, conservatism is every bit as prone to elitism as any uh, other uh, political uh, philosophy, and elitism had overtaken uh, much. of of uh, conservative thinking and the, and listen, if it drifts too far into populism, that'll be a bad thing too. But there is a far, there are far more voices out there uh, to do the kind of things uh, that will avoid what Shannon's concern is: uh, drifting all along Republicans, ultimately becoming more and more progressive. There's more voices now uh, to uh, course correct that. That is a very very good thing. So Shannon, I saved you for the end because I, I I've got to believe you've got a unique perspective on this. For those in our audience, I don't know. Uh, you just went into it, went into work one day at your local radio station, uh, and you had a show that was billing six figures in advertising in a mid-sized market, and they pulled the plug because they had to give you criticizing Trump. Now, the difference between you and the Weekly Standard is you were hitting him from the right. <laughs> All right. So a completely different dynamic than the one the Weekly Standard has. And when I when I did when I worked in a mid market before I got into national media, I had the same problem you had. I had I had, and it was often the Weekly Standard kind of Republicans who constantly complained about me, constantly tried to get me taken off the air for hitting our local Republican Party and our local Rhino Republican governor from the right. All right. So I've been where you are at. I've kind of, and and I've been on the other side of the weekly standard thing where their people try to get rid of guys like me for telling the truth about people like, say, Mitt Romney, for example. So what's your take on this whole thing? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I always chuckle when, you know, the the mantra here with the failing of the weekly standard is, oh, you know, they're they're getting their their due desserts or however you mentioned that. But they're they're getting what they deserve because they're never Trump. They're never Trump. And so I've been labeled never Trump. I've been labeled a Trump hater. Um, I've never been never Trump. I've always been maybe Trump. As long as his policy agendas, his the legislation, the executive orders, the memorandums, the statements, as long as the policies line up with my conservative constitutional 
beliefs, then I would support this president. I've been waiting now for many years for that to happen. I would love for that to happen. And so there's a very different, you know, my brand of never Trump, I'm not never Trump, but my brand is very different than the brand that is being put out by the sour grapes rhino Republicans who just don't like him. You know, you sound so like, you're, you're more like Tucker Carlson, who gave an interview yesterday saying, I want the president to keep more of the promises we were promoting on Fox News. That's what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I want the president to actually do the things that he ran on. The reason that he won the election was because he promised uh, a lot of conservative policies. He promised yeah. to. See, I think that's an important distinction for audience. The Weekly Standard doesn't want him to keep those promises. Yeah. That's the difference between somebody like them and somebody like you. Yeah. Well, and it's it's even weirder. The disconnect is is if you were to replace Donald Trump with Jeb Bush in terms of policy and legislation and discernible policy outcome, then the Weekly Standard would be cheering him, right? Because Bush. Well, I, I've got to believe they're cheering William Barr, aren't they? Wouldn't they? Isn't that the kind of AG that Jeb Bush would have given us as old man's? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's just the most bizarre situation. Where, you know, essentially, you know, the Weekly Standard is, it did for George W. Bush, John McCain and the rhino swampy Republicans, you know, uh, you know, a decade or two ago, exactly what the what I call faux conservative media and big talkers, Fox News, are doing today for Donald Trump. They're basically repackaging progressive leftist policies and branding them as conservative. And so my, my warning would be to conservative outlets and the big talkers to be very careful. When you have Rush Limbaugh telling his audience, face it, you know, debts and deficits don't matter. The American people don't really care. I don't even really care so much about debt and deficit. That was Rush Limbaugh about six months ago. When you have Larry Kudlow, who has railed against tariff faxes for his entire career, do a complete 180 the moment he moved, he steps into the administration, you know, you have a you have a problem there. You have essentially the repackaging of Obama policies, Clinton policies, Bush policies under the banner of Trump conservatism. And so I think that's the the, the danger. Mm-hmm. I hope that there are still voices out there that this, this president needs to be criticized. He needs to be criticized regularly, uh, not because of his personality or you don't like him, you don't like the cut of his jib, uh, not that, on, on the, the policies. And I think that's the... That's the fine balance that we need to take as journalists and pundits uh, is to is to make sure that we're just looking at the facts. And so that's what I try to do. Unfortunately, it got me canned out here in uh, Western New York, but I'm still kicking. Don't worry. I have a lot of irons in the fire. Exit so, question. Other than where we all currently work and or are broadcasting from and or partnered with, no self-serving answers. All right. This is not a setup question. All right. So would you say me uh, <laughs> other than other than anything, anybody you are in business with pl- platformed by other than that, sure. no, no self-serving answers other than that. What conservative media slash personalities do you trust the most? Todd? It's a tie between Thomas Sowell and the Babylon Bee. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. I don't know if I sit here the rest of the day and just said, I'm just going to sit here like this and ruminate on this question. If I could come up with a better answer than that, it is, it speaks volumes, but uh, Aaron, give it a shot. Um, 
I don't know if you'd really call him conservative, but uh, he's on Fox News a lot, so I guess he is, uh, Chris Steyerwald. I like Chris Steyerwald a lot as well. Uh, I think he gives you a really good uh, punchy and profound analysis that I'll let us spin. Shannon, your answer. Uh Trust no one, Jon Snow, would be my answer. Um, I always encourage my audience to follow principles, not pundits, politicians, parties. Uh, and so, um, you know, I've, I think I've been, I think I've just been betrayed too many times. So as long as is it matches up with the principles, I'm going to, I'm going to go with people. But, you know, I don't trust anyone right now. Who would you be most inclined to share their work with to your audience? Let me put it another way. Uh, you and Daniel Horowitz. No, 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 no. Non-self-serving. No, it's not. It's, this was not meant to tee it up. Somebody else. But it's, but it's the truth. There, I, I could can't. I could probably count on two hands the amount of. Um, right now, you know, Daniel Horowitz and uh, his research is invaluable to me for my audience. Um, also, the things that you're focusing on, Steve. But um, I like David Leach, the strident conservative. Right now, he. I'm looking for voices who are brave enough to challenge this president. To me, that's going to show the bona fides that I, that, that I think are necessary in order for us to push through this rebranding, repackaging of conservatism. Uh, okay, that's fair. I mean, give the name. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's a name most of our audience is not familiar with, so he's new. Give, rem, throw his name out there again. Let our audience check out his work. Who are you talking about again? David Leach is the strident conservative. He has a an, an online magazine, and he does uh, two-minute snippets. He's syndicated on uh, Salem Radio, and um, he is fearless. I, I appreciate okay. his work. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk tariff man. Lord, he was born a tariff man, trying to make a living, trolling the best he can. All right, we're going to talk tariff man and you know, the 2020 Democratic primary is underway, and I just need to know who the target audience for this particular messaging is. All right. We'll get into that and more here on Blaze Media Live and on demand. It's the Steve Bay Show. Stay tuned. Back here on demand and live on Blaze Media. I am Steve Dace. They are Todd. They are Aaron. Shannon Joy is here with us. We have a packed house for the opening hour on a Friday because it is the Dace Group Roundtable, your weekly look at the week that was. Feedback Friday is coming up on the next hour of the program. Let's get back to it. Issue three, war with the landlord. China talks are going very well. The China talks stalled last weekend after President Trump's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit. Trump had threatened to escalate the 10% tariffs on various Chinese goods to 25% before the talks ended without any progress. President Xi did agree not to impose any further retaliatory tariffs on American imports. President Trump defended his love of tariffs on Twitter. I'm a tariff man. When people or countries come in to raid the great wealth of our nation, I want them to pay for the privilege of doing so. It will always be the best way to max out our economic power. We are right now taking in dollar sign billions in tariffs. Make America rich again. There's a lot I want to say. I have already said this week about that tweet. There's even more. Now that I look at it again, there's another complete fallacy that stands up to no scrutiny whatsoever intellectually in that tariff, but I'll get to, or in that, uh, I'm sorry, Freudian slip, uh, in that tweet, uh, but I'll get to that in a second. Let's just start with the basic question. Can the tariff man win this, Todd? 
Yes, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Because as I've said before, it not because it's it's sound economic And let me define when. He every he will declare and I'm given my makeup, I am sympathetic to someone that wants to declare victory in every situation. I don't mean he'll claim he wins it. Right, no, I, I mean our, the average person watching and listening right now will feel the effect of him winning it. That's what yes. I mean. But not because uh, tariffs are good economically speaking. It's he is he is engaged in a game of chicken, just like he always was in Manhattan. He loves the high stakes, all in moment in poker. He likes to bully people off the table. That, that's what he's doing. So if at some point, and I don't know, I don't know if there's enough time uh, for this to happen, at least within the next two years. But if he's just drunk on this and he he's insufferable enough. He can just basically wear down China to the point that they'd rather play a different game. And we it, it won't be necessarily economic hosannas for everybody, but what whatever reset of the table there is, you know, might be at least marginally enough better than this to call it legitimately a kind of win. So again, just only because I, I does anybody disagree with me at this point that they, this is what he just likes being an economic bully. He he likes that high stakes poker table. I, well, I, what I hear you saying is that our audience essentially has to hope that in some respects the president is being dishonest to them. That in some respects, when he claims that he is philosophically for this, that's not true. That he doesn't, he's not Herbert Hoover, that he doesn't recognize we don't live in the economy we had. Yeah, Alexander Hamilton loved tariffs too. We also didn't have a tw- you know 20 trillion in debt, not mm-hmm. counting unfunded liabilities mm-hmm. and mandates. And we weren't relying on companies like Kia to reinvent towns in Georgia by bringing jobs here. It was a totally different economy in 1790. Absolutely. Right? Okay, so um, what I hear you saying is that our audience has to kind of hope what he's saying he doesn't believe. And that this is really just one of the few leverage points a president has to exert the pressure. That's what that is. That what I hear you saying? Yes, and you just described much of his presidency beyond this one singular issue as well. That we have to hope he's saying something that he's not really saying. What do you think, Shannon? Well, just to add, in the 1700s, there was no income tax either. That's so exactly right. Yeah. yeah, the tariff policies of the of the framers and and our early leaders were to fund the government. Um, but they were. Also- we also produced a lot more of our own domestic goods. So when when the when the when the tariffed country passed that cost onto the consumer because they weren't going to pay it, and the cost of the good went up, you had more options to go buy, um, right. you know, to go buy uh, that soy or soybean or corn or tobacco from from a from a local domestic manufacturer with uh, with no uh, with no tariff. If you don't listen, if you don't like the tariffs on China, I don't know where else you're buying a damn television set. That's the I mean, or or an appliance for that matter. Matter. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Well, sure. And in addition, those those tariffs were broad in general. Uh, the difference with Trump's tariff faxes is that they're arbitrary and capricious, right? So there's no rhyme or reason. Uh, you, we had an example just in the past few months. Uh, Apple products were on the list. So, you know, the president puts out a list of all the country or all the companies or industries on his hit list. And then they all file to Washington, D.C. And, and probably offer favors. But the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, went in and had, you know, had access to the president. They had a closed door meeting and all of a sudden he was exempted. 
right? Well, you know, the far the soybean farmers and the small manufacturers who don't have lobbying arms and armies of attorneys uh, and accountants and, and entree into the federal government, they don't have that option. And they're the ones. No, who are I can really and I can I can introduce you to two former Republican congressmen here in Iowa who just lost a yeah. month ago who who would uh, would second the point you're about to make. Go ahead. Well, and I'll, and I'll go on. These are long-term contracts. So everyone is cheering that Donald Trump might not impose new tariff faxes, but they forget the ones that he has already imposed. And even the threat of tariff faxes has a dampening effect in the economy. And this was, this was evidenced just a few months ago when China canceled multiple multi-year million dollar contracts with U.S soybean farmers in exchange for a contract with Russia, right? They signed a multi-year contract with Russia. That's something that you can't fix. That's something that that is revenue that so you're you're just not only are small and medium-sized businesses, farmers, manufacturers hurting here, but the American consumer is seeing their tax cuts wiped out. So kiss goodbye your 2017 piddly tax cut. I think mine was about $24 a week in my paycheck, that is gone because the price of your cars, the price of your appliances, the price of goods and services, their home building costs are going through the roof. And this is already in a crisis in um, the home building industry right now. There, you know, So this is a very dangerous game of chicken and it's not with Donald Trump's money and it's not with the Republican party's money and it's not with the big corporations money. This is a game of chicken that they're playing on the backs of the American people. And, and it's, to me, this is one of the single biggest issues that need to be addressed because this is not going to end well, not for our economy, which is already beginning to soften and not for the American people. Aaron. Aaron. Yeah, so I, I we've we've been talking about tariffs all, all the time, and, and there's a difference to me between the tariffs um, on things that are discretionary, like the the Apple products that Foxconn makes manufacturers over in in uh, China, and things that are uh, like raw goods that some American companies, probably smaller companies, rely upon um, to do business to the to actually grow their businesses and so so we have to have to i think separate those two things regardless though retaliatory tariffs and the instability now of american exports into china because of trump's initial tariffs those if 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 you're going to do this and you're going to use tariffs as a weapon do it because of the uh, of the pain that you're going to inflict upon your own people in your own country when you have such a large trading partner like tr China either do it go full measure Walter White or don't do it at all okay do it to where it's prohibitively um, uh, expensive for China to do any business with us force them to the if you're going to use this piece do it right or don't do it at all this somewhere ethereal middle ground that we're in um no i mean china china can play that china has been here a lot longer than the united states was they're certainly going to be here a lot longer than donald trump is going to be around they can play this game all day probably throughout the rest of the history of their and our country either do this full measure or don't do it at all at all at this point point. and to answer the question that you originally posed what game are we playing what game are we playing with these tariffs if you're going to play the game, you play to win the game, Herm Edwards. You play to win the game. I don't see us doing that right now, and I don't think for a second 
that Trump has any idea philosophically what tariffs are or what they're doing for what Ch Shannon just pointed out, giving the breaks to Apple. Well, if Apple's going to get a big break, why not, uh, why not the small guy here in Iowa who wants to just, you know, maybe sell the crop that he spent a ton of money planting and, har you know, and spraying and doing all harvesting as well? Why not give him a break as well? No, the little guy is always the one who's going to get shafted. And the longer that we play this stupid game, the more either A, we just see tariffs as a way to make back the money we lost in, in cutting taxes or something like that, or just a way to increase the revenue of the federal government, or two, Trump doesn't know what the hell he's doing right here. I don't get it. Um, I, I get the, I get the concepts of using tariffs as a weapon, mm -hmm. um, but I don't get what we're doing right here. Well, I don't think conceptually his messaging has any is cogent on any level whatsoever. I mean, first of all, what's what's MAGA nationalist America first about, hey, as long as you pay us, you can come in and raid our wealth. I, 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 what, hey, if you're you're a drywaller watching us right now, you install appliances for a living, you have a small business, I have a small business. What's the price for letting another country, what's, what's the price, what, what, what's your share of the cut you want that, that, that you think justifies another country coming here and quote, raiding our wealth? It makes no sense whatsoever. And then later in that same tweet, he says, we're raking in billions from these tariffs. Then why the hell are we blowing deficits through the roof? Where, where's all this money at? So this whole thing is a beyond, is a fallacy. So there's two options, and Aaron articulated them. One is that that he absolutely believes in this philosophy that has that's been outdated for decades, and and he's and he's making economic arguments that just simply don't line up with the reality of the markets. I don't think that I think there's probably some truth to that. He has been a longtime proponent of this of tariffs as a scheme, but I think it's more likely these are leverage points. And if that's the case, then 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 the president has to know. When to say when? What's the sweet spot where I've pushed China as far as I can push them? Because while China needs our middle class and they are the landlord, they are now they're also in a command economy. They can manufacture, artificially inseminate things even beyond the level that we can, because they're a dictatorship, and they essentially control most of. They have the economic leverage over the Korean Peninsula as well. They're willing to do business with shady regimes like Russia and Iran that we probably can't be willing to go along with, given the state of what we're trying to accomplish. We have a foreign policy responsibility to the world. They don't to the free world. They have meaning there, that there there is a place in time where our value as middle class consumers to China, he does have some leverage with them. But then there's a point in time where if you push them too far, they simply say, you know what, the cost of meeting your demands is so high, we'll just wait you out and let your consumer suffer because we can contrive and inseminate things in our economy as a dictatorship. You can't. So we'll play your game of chicken. I just want to know if the president knows which of those, what time period that actually is. Let's get to the exit question here. If the outcome of Trump's trade policies for the American consumer were a police song, which police song would it be? A, King of Pain. B, Every Little Thing Trump Does is Magic. See what I did there? C, Wrapped Around Your Finger. Todd, quickly. I'll say B. Shannon. I'm going to say King of Pain. Aaron. It's King of Pain. Issue four. Um, who's, the, who's the target audience for this? Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York tweeted this this week. Our future is female, intersectional, powered by our belief in one another. And we're just getting started. It's mentioned as a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, but right now almost everybody is. 
We live in the first in the nation caucus state. All right, guys. So I'm going to start with us as a team here. I mean, I, I think I know my state pretty well. I don't vote in the Democratic caucuses, obviously, and I know they're, they're, the people do that do that are different than us. But I, I don't know too many Iowans that this is the message for them. I, give me the composite of the voter that this this attracts. Who? Well, I hope a female is in my future, but I don't know if that's what she meant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to talk about this issue anyway, so let's leave it at that. That was beautiful. No, I'm de- I'm dead serious. I, I don't know. I know. Although there, that is a great line, they, no doubt about they it. They don't know. Iowa, Iowa, That's my question. Yes. they don't okay, know. We we've they lived don't here. Care. I've lived here since 1995. I was born here. I've lived here. I've, I grew up some of my childhood here. I've lived most, not all, but most of my life here. How long have you lived here? Uh, 18 years. I Aaron, think. you've lived your whole life here? Uh, with the exception of five. When, yeah, when, you, were, when you were in college, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the three of us combined have lived at, at basically like a half a century in this state. So I, I know there's like 15% of the population at Grinnell College right now that is just sitting there, you know, they're Pavlovian dogs. But tell me, who is the average Iowan that's going to vote in the Democratic? Give me the composite. We, we live with these people. We're at the shopping market with these people. We're at the Jordan Creek Mall with them. We go to the movies with them. We go to football games and basketball games with lots of people that are voting in the Democratic caucus in January of 2020. Listen, Tell me who okay. she's reaching not, with that. It's, but we could have said the same thing, and we did, about uh, Barack Obama's messaging. But like I, when I put my foot up, uh, that little shtick I did last week, it's, can you be cool when you're doing it? If so in she, other words, you're saying her messaging is everything we didn't like about Obama yeah. and none of the stuff you did. Is that what you're saying? But, well, I, I don't, I know who she is, but once she's exposed to everyone, and most, you know, most people know her less than we do, mm-hmm. and if she can wear that well, in contrast to the worst of Donald Trump, yeah, I mean, because this is where we live now. Here's the thing with Obama is this may have been his base. That wasn't his messaging. It was, it was I represent this base, but, but when I say we're going to do Medicare for all, I believe it, and Hillary Clinton doesn't. But there was still this Reverend This is just Wright. open cultural. But that stuff happened after he essentially won the nomination. We learned about all of that. I know, but that's already a long time ago now, too. I just, the, there's a lot. We, we just two years ago thought Trump was impossible for various okay. reasons, and it happened. We just have to take the pos- – if she can make this look cool somehow, this electorate is – Listen, I'm going to say we're all dumb as dirt. All of us. The things we accept, the premises we accept. So, yeah, is this possible? Despite you, you're just being too damn rational. That's yeah. the thing. So I just if, don't know if, a lot of if, these people. Yeah. and I've lived here most of my life. You know, an inception where um, somebody who gets into somebody else's dream and the, the person's yeah. subconscious starts to look at that person like, oh, boy, they're they're in here. If Kristen Gillibrand went up about four minutes away from here to the machine shed and said that tweet out loud spoke yeah. that tweet out loud people would start looking at her like that that's that's the, but at the very same time this is i think that's in iowa i mean outside of a few square miles on grinnell and grandview and over in iowa city and ames and the, you know the university campuses uh, a few from uh, aside from those yeah most people are going to start looking at her like that well at the very same time everything todd said is is absolutely correct at the same time 
Why is that? Because we are a double-minded people systemically. Shannon, can you give me a one-minute answer? Because we got to get yeah. predictions in here as well. One minute. You're in New yeah. York State. How many people in New York State that, that are Democrats, they're going to respond to that? Yeah, they, no one's going to respond to that. But it just proves I'm, I'm Todd is my spirit animal right now. It doesn't matter. This is what we get. What She could say the dumbest thing in the world, Donald Trump talking about grabbing them by the you-know-whats, because we are locked into this binary false choice yes. Republican Democrat paradigm, the unibrow, as I call them, it doesn't matter what they say. We're still going to shuffle into the election booth. We're going to pull the lever for the one that we think is the lesser of two evils. Yeah. This is why I got to bust out of it. You're right. You're right in the general. She's got to get there first. I'm talking about, like, I don't even know people in a Democratic primary, by and large, that respond to that messaging. That's my point. I agree when we get to the general, it doesn't matter what she believes. You're, I agree. I agree. All right, next question. If the percentage of Americans who truly know and embrace what intersectionality means were a police song, which police song would it be? A, don't stand so close to me. B, every breath you take. C, da do 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 da 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 meaning whatever, dude, I don't care. What do you think? I, I love the first one, and then I love the second one, and I'm just swooning with the third one, so let's go see. All right, Shannon. Um, I'm going to go see because I don't quite understand the connection with it. <laughs> Sometimes I can't figure it out, and I'm trying to— So I'll just, Meaning they're K-Sarasara, yeah, I don't care. Uh, Aaron, it's C. I'll go with my spirit animal. It's C. All right, predictions, Todd. What was my prediction? Oh, yes. Uh, after what happened with Kevin Hart, I think we are on a train to see um, Black Panther win the Oscar. They got to do a make good? Yeah. And it will be on our turf, so it'll make it kind of difficult for us. Aaron. My first decent prediction in months was that Kevin Hart was going to fall victim to the uh, social justice mob. Um, well, crap. It's one day too, uh, too early. Uh, so I'm going to predict that he's going to be replaced with a white dude. Shannon, very quick go. Unfortunately, I think a DACA fix will be included in the final legislation on December 24th. My prediction, Neil deGrasse Tyson will soon resign from the National uh, or the Museum of Natural History and be defrocked from the public square now that BuzzFeed's on his story. Hour two is next. Thank you, Shannon. Take care. Thanks, guys. All right, back with hour two here, live and on demand on Blaze Media. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. And we'd love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. For those of you listening on the podcast later today on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. And if you are listening to us today, uh, via podcast if you have a moment and you haven't done so already leave us a five-star review if you like our show if you don't don't lie just maybe say nothing uh, but if you do like our show those five-star reviews certainly help us to attract more folks like you that may also be people of questionable taste that decide they like this show too uh, if you could at least hit the subscribe button that would help us as well so subscribe give us five-star reviews please we beg of thee thank you uh, it's a Christmas miracle. And thank you to all of you that have already done uh, those entirely self-serving uh, things on our show's behalf. Speaking of self-serving, let's get to it. Today's Truth Bomb, a totally contrived segment I created just to have an excuse to plug my book and urge you to go to Amazon.com and order it for pre-sales for Christmas. It's coming out January 15th. Now, I'm not just urging you on my own behalf. My kids would really appreciate this, too, because there, there could very well be a Disney vacation riding on this next Christmas. Not 
trying to make you feel guilty, but I'm just saying. There's some pressure there on the audience to come through here. I mean, I, I already did my share. I did all the work. I wrote the cotton picking thing. All right. So I'd, I already did everything. So now it's you guys' turn. You guys got to pick up the slack now. All right. Coattails, baby. Coattails. That's right. It's called Truth Bombs Confronting the Lies Conservatives Believed or Our Own Demise. Due out January 15th. But if you're looking for that last minute Christmas gift, pre orders available right now at Amazon.com. And today's Truth Bomb, since it is a Feedback Friday, I got to go right the very first item on the feedback list. This is from Dave Elbert. And it's one of those things I thought it was so pithy, so profound. So brilliant. I wished I would have written this myself. I'm like, dang, this would make a good column. Dave writes, with the new 4,000 accepted genders, have we effectively seen the elimination of the gender pay gap? Yes. Yes, that is exceedingly well, well played. After all, he says, if gender is indeed fluid, how can there be a gender pay gap? That's exactly right. I mean, after all, if it's just as simple as men are blatantly paid more than women, why not just identify as a man? Voila! Gender pay gap be gone with thee. Yes. Uh, what, what is the pay gap between uh, self-identified leprechauns and the dragon lady in Arizona? That is a really good question. What's your answer? Well, you're asking me to answer. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. You, you answer. I don't know. Well, I just, even though, yes, the, the gender pay gap may be uh, gone, but the uh, uh, getting your ass kicked into oblivion gap is stretching. Just another example today, like some 6'3", 230-pound Australian dude is like crushing women in international handball. So, you know, you get rid of one gap, you open up another. It's tomato, tomato. Jabbed. Right. Yeah. I hear you. All right, let's get to some feedback Friday. Uh, these are some of the responses that you have sent us via the stevedace.com inbox in recent days. Hopefully, some of you can at least measure up, hope to measure up to Dave Elbert's pithy, profound take there a minute ago. Uh, this is from Rebecca. She says, something you said recently about Trump did not ring true to me. You said he hasn't or won't fire people for poor performance and implied he's not tough enough. I think the record reflects that 30 days in, he did fire General Flynn. He's also fired James Comey. Uh, and that is what directly led to the biggest mess that he now has on hand. Um, you guys think he doesn't have the guts to do more. I think he's barely holding himself in check. I do have the advantage of not using Twitter, so I pay no attention to that nonsense. He got rid of McMaster. He got rid of Bannon. I uh, even got rid of Seb Gorka, etc. You think he doesn't want to fire, fire people. I think he'd prefer to run the whole place with outsiders and his family. His mistake is trying to compromise and listen to leaders like the House Speaker Paul Ryan and the Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Also, in regard to the bad hires he made in Ryan's Priebus and Sean Spicer, I think this was partially a result of no political experience, and he didn't think he would win along with everyone else. He had no one to turn to other than the folks that were there with him and no time to think. He alienated so many experienced established people that he didn't have anyone to tell him mistakes he was making. Then throw in the biggest ego and the fear of looking like he doesn't know what he's doing, and he was stuck. I actually think this is a pretty fair take. I even think the point Rebecca makes about not being on Twitter vis-a-vis -vis as, as an outlet for daily interaction and monitoring of the process, meaning for those of us that are in, in that world and are following these stories on a daily basis. It seemed like Rex Tillerson was allowed to embarrass the president for 10 years. Mm -hmm. if, if you're not in that world and you, and you live a normal life that we don't get to live because of the vocation that, that, that we chose, which by the way, 
we're happy with. It beats going out of mine shaft with a flashlight, but it just means you're of the luxury of kind of plugging in and out of the zeitgeist at a more laissez-faire or laid-back rate than those of us who are paid to, you know, stand watch over it. It seems like Rex Tillerson was a problem for 10 minutes. So I, I think Rebecca's perspective here is one worthy of us considering. Your thoughts, Todd? Uh, my answer is a question. Mm-hmm. Do- we have to have the courage to hold Donald Trump accountable to his own standards. He said he would hire all the best people. Rebecca, has he? But I think in her email, she points out that he has not. Um, yeah. yeah. And and I think her response to, she's pointing out that we've been too harsh no. in saying he's he hasn't dispatched these people quick enough. You're not helping Donald Trump by giving him outs and excuses. Be sufficient. Don't be overly harsh. Be sufficiently harsh on him. He deserves more blame than anybody else. He is the president of the United States. It's his hires. Uh, sure, he has fired him. Uh, and... I don't I don't I don't know that anybody on this front people have been overly harsh on him on, on multiple things and we push back on that as well. On this front all of us all of us deserve better. Yeah, I think the best thing in that uh in that message in that email was when she said I'm not on Twitter and I stay away from all that nonsense. Right on. And as far as not firing enough um not firing enough people it's going through her list. It is amazing, is it not? Maybe this is normal. Maybe maybe this is normal. I don't think it is, though. It is amazing how how much turnover there has been just in the first two years of the uh, of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it. On the one hand, I, I don't really think it's an issue of being too hard on Trump because there are still, um, I mean, there there are still opportunities for him to get better people in there. Uh, one today, I mean, why 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 did he fire what? Jeff Sessions is all over the map. Why this person, the person Barr, the person that he hired today announced that he was going to hire for attorney general. Why that person? I don't know. Is that the best person? So then I think maybe based on how Barr does, we probably will want Trump to fire him and Trump probably won't. Um, Things like that. So I don't really think it's a huge issue whether or not we're being too hard on him for for not firing enough people because – at the end of the day, why do we ask him to do that? It's because of what Todd said in that he promised to hire the best people, and I don't think that that has really come to fruition yet. Something was, I was listening to you guys respond to Rebecca that dawned on me, and I think, again, this is the the difference when you're plugged into this daily, and sometimes you don't see the forest or the trees as when you kind of come to it um, at, at, at your own convenience, and it's maybe easier to kind of ascertain the bigger picture. The list of these people in her email. You know what they all have in common? Not a damn thing. Nothing. They, they literally have nothing in common. I mean, let's, let's go through the names in her, that she has in her note. So General Flynn, why was he fired? He lied to Vice President Mike Pence. That's not in dispute. That's why he was fired. He lied to the Vice President of the United States. All right, so this is a former Obama-era defense and intelligent official intelligence official that's who michael flynn was was he like one of the top guys at the department of national intelligence or something like that in the obama era okay he was fired for lying to the vice president james comey 
And, and then, and now he also had, now Flynn, to be fair to Flynn, I'm not saying he was an Obama Easter judge or general, uh, but he was an Obama era and he had plenty of rubbing the wrong way with the Obama people for years and the idea that maybe their foreign policy was a little bit light in the loafers compared to the more robust version that he wanted. Uh, James Comey is your ultimate swamp creature. Ultimate swamp creature, and Trump kept him as uh, as the head of the FBI. Um, and it's funny, I know it seems like this was ancient history. At the time Trump elected to keep him, we were told from the left it was as a payback for Comey delivering the election for Trump with his letter at the end. Remember that? Doesn't that seem like it was 25 years ago? Yeah. It was barely two years ago. Barely. All right. Um, McMaster, you have a progressive Obama general. Great patriot. We don't deny that he's a patriot, but he's a progressive. Hardcore progressive. Okay. Steve Bannon, hardcore MAGA nationalist, maybe the Benjamin Franklin of Trump's nationalist base in some respects. These people, Seb Gorka, I don't even remember why. I mean, I know Steve Bannon essentially fired himself for the interview that he gave where he spoke out of school. I, does anybody remember what Seb Gorka was even fired for? I don't remember why they got rid of him. Did, I don't remember some major, maybe there was, I don't remember some like major scandal or something. Mm, no, I, I think it was. Listen, he start, I think he's starting a show with our old company Salem on, the, on New Year's Day, right? He's doing a, a talk show nationally with them. I think it starts America First or something. I don't remember what big scandal led to his firing. Do you know? I think it was all rhetorical with him. Yeah, yeah, that's what I. He just said was something. honest too often. Yeah, he is was, that what you? Yeah, said? yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that happens. Can't have that. Can't have so much honesty around here. And maybe have you been on the end of that stick before? I, I know a thing or two about that. If if there was a problem uh, that we're not that email us and fact check us, okay? If there was some other scandal other than Seb Gorka was just too honest about some stuff. Okay, because I I wasn't a, I don't remember like any Me Too or corruption or didn't pay my taxes. Do you remember anything like that? I don't. No. I mean, because I mean, Mike Flynn was fired. I don't. Right now, there's some some of our friends on the right are trying to make Mike Flynn out to be a victim. He might be a victim of the Mueller probe. We don't know that. But Mike Flynn lost his job because he lied to the vice president of the United States. That's not a debatable point. He's in. He's at least the first step of this mess. Mike Flynn put himself there by doing that. Now, beyond that first step, we have no idea how much of this or not. You know, and all we know is the independent counsel earlier this week said he did a great job uh, in being a friend of the independent counsel's office. So he doesn't recognize. Or he's not going to recommend any jail time. But Mike Flynn was not fired because of the Mueller probe. Mike Flynn was. Mike Flynn was fired long before. There was a Mueller probe. Mike Flynn was fired because he lied to the vice president of the United States. All right, so let's not let's not forget that part of it. Okay, I don't remember what Seb Gorka did. I, maybe he was involved in that somehow or some way, but I don't remember that. Um, Reince Priebus, the ultimate establishment hack. Now, I don't know that our audience on the, the on the Blaze has ever heard my one Reince Priebus. I know please, this is one of your favorites, isn't it, Aaron? Please tell the story. As I get older, I'm starting to realize I want to do story time more often. And so I'm, <laughs> st- I'm trying to self-police, you know, but this is the one Aaron loves this story. So this is my one, for those of you that are new to the show, this is my one and only interaction with Reince Priebus. I was at CPAC, I think it was 2016, and we were there to launch uh, a nefarious plot when it came out. And I there and I'm standing doing I'm just finishing an interview outside the main hall and I feel an a hand on my shoulder pat me on the shoulder 
And so when you hear, when you feel a hand on the back of your shoulder, invariably you turn around to see who it is, right? I turn around and someone is walking by me and he looks over and he's walking away. He looks back at me and he says, I'm not the bad guy, Deese. And it was Ryan Priebus. That's my one and only interaction with Ryan Priebus. I don't know why that tickles Aaron's fancy so oh, much. Maybe because it is the perfect, the perfect uh, stereotype of his passive aggressiveness. Oh, is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, walking yeah. away, um, taking the initiative, and then walking away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can't fire me. I quit. Yeah. Mispronouncing your name because yes. you're a little person, you know, typical, typical uh, progressive establishment Republican stuff. I, I could, I t- and I did say the day they hired Sean Spicer to be the White House press secretary, that was a terrible hire. Remember we said that. Now, I've interacted with Sean Spicer for years. He's doing a good job repackaging himself as likable now. When he had that job at the RNC, he was one of the most disliked people, unliked, unlikable people you'd meet in the Republican Party. And you want you want another story? I'll tell you that the, in my career, I've had like three limo rides. And it's not because I can afford it because the people that I was going to meet with could. And so they sent that kind of car. When we first got when I first got hired to be a part of Salem's radio network, they have this annual retreat and it's at this posh five star hotel on the Pacific out there in Santa Barbara in dead January. And for the first time in like 10 years, they were bringing all the radio hosts out. And they were doing it because they were going to announce that uh, uh, Bill Bennett was retiring and uh, um, I can't remember. Larry uh, was going to take his place. I can't remember Larry's last name. And and I'm so sorry because he's really a great guy. Black conservative. I can't remember his name. Was going to take his place. Elder? Larry Elder. Thank you. you. Okay. You know what it was? I had Larry Kudlow in the brain because Shannon brought him up and I just couldn't get around Larry Kudlow. So we were going to make this big announcement. So Ben Shapiro, me, everybody on the Salem Network all get brought to Santa Barbara to this five-star hotel. And it's a day of meetings and we're going to do the, these, these round tables with all of the program directors and the corporate VT, VPs. And the main event, the last night, Joe Piscopo did his Frank Sinatra for us because he worked at the Salem station in New York and it was it was fan- it was every bit as fantastical as you pr- in person as you remembered it in Saturday Night Live when you were a kid. I mean, I I I grabbed the phone, my phone, and FaceTimed it live for my wife back in Des Moines because I knew she'd want to see that. All right, I mean, he just got up and did it for us, kind of ad hoc, and was insane. And the main event, the last night of the confab, is all of the main national hosts were did a roundtable where we took live questions from the audience. It was me, Medved. Uh, Prager, uh, Bennett was the MC, and uh, so is this Maxis. the one with Metaxas and Metaxas yeah. and, Aaron, and Hewitt? Yeah, uh, and and so th- the prior to that, we had Sean Spicer host a, a, a symposium, a presentation, and and I don't know what it was supposed to be, but what it turned out to be was here's how you guys can all shill for the Republican Party, and it could not have been more nauseating and more obnoxious. I got up and walked out. I just, I'm like, I can't, I can't even. If I don't walk out, I'm going to spontaneously combust and say stuff. That's going to get everybody fired before this whole thing. (laughs) I can't do this. All right. So the morning after it's done and we're all going to the Santa Barbara airport to catch our flights home. Two guys assigned to the same limo to the airport. Who do you think they were? Oh boy. Yeah. It's me and Sean Spicer <laughs> sitting in the back of this car, man. And it was, 
I think the last time I experienced a quiet this uncomfortable with other dudes is in my pagan days when we used to go to like the strip club and there's always that uncomfortable silence of when you're in the car on the way home because um, it's just, it's not comfortable. And uh, that's kind of what it felt like. It was, uh, as my kids like to say, awkward. It was really, <laughs> and we like both pretended to be on our phones, you know, and checking stuff. So we wouldn't, so, and, and like no small talk. I mean, it was quiet as kept. And it was, it was, it was not a good, it was, I, it, I was anxious. That was a long commute. It was like five minutes and I, or 10, I felt like an hour and a half. But I mean, I said the day they hired him, he'd be a disaster. And he was a disaster. He's the, he was Ryan's Priebus's Grover Dill, if you know your Christmas story references. He was the worm tongue of the RNC. And, he, and his job was to call up, that, that's what he did. He would call up people and yell at them on the phone for daring to think for themselves and not take the explicit orders of Ryan's Priebus. That's what he did. That was going to be a disaster. There's just, I mean, there's no way you say if you know it. If you know it, Grover Dell, there's no way that you can spit. That's a bad look. And then like a second later, oh yeah, and worm tongue. <laughs> <laughs> In case I didn't drive it home. All right. These hires, when you look at this group, throw Rex Tillerson in there, who was a, who, if, and I said when Rex Tillerson was appointed, that if, if he worked in any other industry other than oil with his ideological profile, he could have been Hillary Clinton's secretary of state. Mm-hmm. Total globalist, total progressive. And he went out there and countermanded the president's foreign policy speeches how many times, including the best one he gave in Riyadh in May of 2017. What do Jeff Sessions and Rex Tillerson have in common? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. They don't run in the same circles. They, they run in circles that actually hate each other, actually. So when you look at all of these names and you look at the people that, have, that are gone, normally you're like, well, you can see I, these people literally all have nothing in common. It, they are, they're a rainbow coalition, guys. That is really odd. I don't know what it means, but I, I've just never looked at, thought this through this way, and I just did happen. It, this just occurred to me, Eureka, live here on the air. All of these people that have been canned, by and large, collectively as a group, there is no common refrain. They have nothing in common. And now you're going from Jeff Sessions. So the president didn't think Jeff Sessions was tough enough on the independent counsel. And so the answer is the next attorney general is the independent counsel's longtime buddy, peer, from the Bush Justice Department days? <laughs> you, so you, you didn't think Jeff Sessions wielded enough loyalty? You think George H.W. Bush's attorney general from a quarter century ago who has known Bob Mueller probably since the Vietnam War? You think he's going to be the guy See, that drops the hammer? You keep trying to connect dots. We've talked about this a lot recently. Connect dots under the assumption that th- sooner or later, just there like when we, there are, there's a picture in there. <laughs> there is a there, dot. There's a red one there. right now. It's like a laser scope, <laughs> and it's following me everywhere I go. All there's right? no dots. There's no pictures. There's no. There's no. There's no there. There on this front. What's that great kids movie uh, within the last couple of years about the emotions? Whoa. Inside Out. Sorry. Inside Out. Yes. The, the, the all of the five in that. The, there's the. There's just a bigger bag of cats in yeah. Trump's head, and we, we see all this. The, yeah. This is what you're describing. Yeah. But you right. can't. 
Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Trying trying to connect dots, assuming there are actually dots to be connected. It's like a it's more like a tie-dye t-shirt. It's more like, I don't know, a psychedelic. It's more like a psychedelic trip. It's like everybody's on Quaaludes right now. What a long, strange trip it's been, Mr. Yeah. Garcia. Is that yep. what you're telling me? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I am just, I don't want to believe. I, I don't want to believe William Barr was appointed attorney general today because the president thought that it, it was a good idea to put a bushy there, given all the heat he's been taking, which is all fake news, by the way, on cable news. They've been, it's been, a, it's been fake news using this as an, the Bush funeral as an excuse to trash Trump. I, I don't want to believe that William Barr was brought out of literal mothballs, literal mothballs. He was the attorney general a quarter century ago. I don't want to believe he was put in this position whatsoever as a reaction to President Trump getting unfairly criticized for not fetting George Herbert Walker Bush enough the same by the same media that called him a racist, misogynistic, homophobic, out-of-touch bigot his entire political career. Why do I suspect, though, that it at least has something to do with it? Why do I suspect that? Do you want the answer to that question? Can it be the answer I want it to be? <laughs> do you want the answer to that question? <laughs> and an infinite regress begins. What are the odds? That it's at least part of it? Yeah. Um, as that robot, I uh, can't remember his name, said in Rogue One, hi. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that robot's thing was, his reprogramming is what he just said, what was true, even if it was very, very uncomfortable. Brutal honesty in all yeah. things? <laughs> hi. <laughs> Uh, platypus kofefe. Yeah, let's get serious now. <laughs> <laughs> that was not my best segue, I'm going to admit. All right. Uh, you did say it totally serious. I like, did. Like, from, the, from the chief of staff of the, uh, yeah, platypus kofefe. And next, our masterpiece theater, Hamlet Act 3, followed by Macbeth. Yes. Uh, Platypus Kofefe, who could just be as serious as anybody else's these oh, days. I intend, I fully expect it. Uh, says, what is stopping the GOP from capping tuition, closing down leftist propaganda departments, or instituting other reforms over education? The modern college is an, is an unaffordable institution, enslaving the next generation both financially and mentally, and most of them are publicly funded, so where's the accountability? This, I gotta say, I thought your name was just adorable enough. But when I read your take, Platypus Kofefe, I just have to say, you're adorable. I mean, that just you're adorable. You're new here, right? <laughs> he's new here, guys. Yeah. Cut him some slack. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's new. Uh, he's a recently evolved species, the platypus. You know, nature had once given up on it, but it's back up on the, uh, it's ranking really high on the uh, natural selection power ratings again. And the platypus is back. Uh, with a vengeance. So the platypus is new here, but that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Here's how it works. The way it works is the left gets to do whatever they want to whoever they want, whenever they want. You pay, 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 you pay 
and you pay some more. All right. It's $5. You holla every, every day. That's what it is. That's how government works. Left does whatever it wants, whenever it wants, to whomever it wants. All right. And you pay, you pay $5. You holla. Um, we elect a bunch of Republicans to do something about it, of which they never will. However, it keeps people like me employed because we get to continue to clickbait the cultural Marxists who are making us pay with content that gets huge viewership because most of America, regardless of how they vote, hates this crap. And so it helps us to grow our audience in conservative media by pointing out all of the bias and fascism and tyranny and oppressiveness on college campuses. All right. Um, and that's our reward is we get to make more money in conservative media so we can further subsidize the tyranny. that They then give us the, the cannon fodder of content to write about and broadcast about in order to get you guys to watch and to listen to us. That, that's, so for, if you're new here, like Platypus Kofefe is, all right, and you're not really sure, hey man, how's this whole, how's this whole politics thing work? How's it work? What's the, how's it, how, what's it do? How's, what's the, what is the system? What's the swamp? What are the establishments? What's the unibrow? How's it, how's this whole thing? How's it, what makes it tick? Now, you know, I, I can't, I'm happy. I can't possibly add to that on the cynicism front. Uh, I'm so happy right now. Because that was a tour de force. I can't stop smiling. I'm so happy. Really happy, man. Go ahead, Todd. Did he ask the why doesn't the federal government? Can you? Is that what he said? That it, it does it. Does I know, it but did he? Is that what he said? No, that, no. He just said the government in yeah. general. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a a less cynical answer uh, is in terms of the realities. Uh, the um, you, it's a state. Funded issue at the federal level, the best you can do is choke off grants, and you would be seen as a heartless sob who doesn't want poor kids and minorities to go to school. That's probably the best. And at the local level, state uh, funding for education is the dominant pool of money. State governments everywhere are run by educrats who convince suckers who are in the middle or even on the right that education is the, you know, we can't. It's for the children and all that stuff. So, um, I just to expand to the extent I can beyond. Uh, what Steve says, but the answers to those are all ultimately cynical as well. Aaron, as the most recently educated among us, your yeah, thoughts? I'm trying to find this gif that Todd tweeted. Here it is. Here it is. Here is our system and conservatives Oh yeah, in that system. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> Wait for it. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's, that's us. And Guys, I, at the end of the day, and Platypus Kofefe, um, at the end of the day, we can rail on the GOP, and the answer to your question is the GOP is keeping the GOP from doing this because the GOP knows that um, all they want is money and power, just like the leftist. By and large, there are still some good people trying to do good things within that uh, party, and one of our friends of the show... Um, who just got elected in Texas, Chip Roy. Um, he was on the show. A couple, he's one of those people. At the end of the day, though, they keep their power and they keep doing nothing because a lot of us, a lot of us are the suckers. 
More Feedback Friday here on Blaze Media Live and On Demand next. Stay tuned. Did you guys see this uh, massive identity theft over at the Marriott Hotels? Worldwide, 500 million people. 500 million people. How, you just put that in perspective. There's about 338 million people in the United States. So we're talking 30, 40% more than the total population of the U.S. had their identities hijacked via thieves, uh, courtesy of Marriott and all the information they keep on us. That included your name, um, financial information like credit cards, including that three-digit security code that supposedly we use to avoid uh, fraud or to help us uh, essentially inoculate ourselves from fraud. Uh, the personal information like your name, date of birth, uh, a banking info, a passport, you know, the kinds of secondary information that when you do business online, the, the outlet will ask for to verify your identity. All of that in the hands now, 500 million people worldwide, all now in the hands of thieves. And one of the things I can promise you they're going to take a look at, because it's one of the new crime sprees sweeping the country, home title fraud. This is going to make your home title even more vulnerable. And the reason why is because of the number one valuable asset most Americans have is their own home, particularly the equity in that home. That's why they're thieving the home, the titles of your home. They want to liquidate that equity so you don't get to when it comes time to sell the house or get that second mortgage or a HELOC or something like that. That equity has gone because they've taken it from you. They've uh, pilfered your home title uh, online because they're not you know, housed in halls of records anymore. Uh, they have forged a signature. Now that, that they've stolen the identities of 500 million people, they can actually vouch for you because they can say, hey, I've got that three-digit code for the credit card. I've, I've got the banking info. Here's my date of birth. You know, the kinds of things that typically are asked for to verify an identity. Here's one way to protect yourself. Here's the way to protect yourself. Home title lock. Uh, for pennies a day, they put a virtual barrier around your home's title so they detect any sinister activity at all. They are on the case at Home Title Lock, and you don't know, maybe your home title has already been targeted. You can find out for free. It's normally $100, but the title report and scan offered at Home Title Lock is free today. To our viewers and listeners here on Blaze Media, free if you just go to HomeTitleLock.com. I mean, you have nothing to lose at all by protecting, making sure your number one investment is secure. HomeTitleLock.com. All right, let's get back to some Feedback Friday. I've gotten a ton of reaction to the conversation we had yesterday. Uh, we had a respectful debate uh, with a noted pastor theologian, John MacArthur, and myself. Uh, in response to something he said to uh, Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire recently about the American Revolution. If you missed that uh, podcast, go on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. This is why you want to hit that subscribe button. So it just goes right automatically into your podcast feed because we got a ton of reaction to this. Uh, I could do an entire show of just reaction to this. I'm not going to do that, though, because I, I think I, I hold Pastor MacArthur in high esteem, and I just think it'd be kind of trolly to go beyond sure. what we did yesterday. There's one question though, and there, and I'm not saying this was the only one, so don't please don't be insulted if it's not your question, but there's one question in particular one of our listeners offered that I wished I would have thought of yesterday. And Walter Gade says, here's the question I'd like to ask Pastor MacArthur. 
If you really, if this is really your interpretation of Romans 13, then why are you a Protestant? Given how tightly bound the church was with the state at that time in history, which it was. I mean, we're always honest about the history of the church on this show. I was brutally honest about the way certain denominations of Christianity would oppress other denominations in the colonies. You basically couldn't hold office as a Catholic in most of the colonies. We talked about, if no way if you were a Jew. We talked openly about those things. We don't hide from any of the history of, of really anything on this show. And that was one of the number one, I mean, the doctrine of the separation of church and state, as we know it today, really comes out of the Protestant Reformation because you did have the politicization of the College of Cardinals, you had offices of bishop that were sold for political purposes. You essentially had, what's the name of the political, for lack of a better term, crime family that essentially scammed and bribed their way into the papacy? The Borgias? The, the Borgias, they, thank you, okay? So this, there is a point here that I think is, 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 pretty value, is, is pretty valuable to consider. If you are a Protestant, like Pastor MacArthur, and your argument is that we don't ever revolt against the government authority— in many respects, wasn't the Reformation revolt against a government authority, given how intertwined uh, the church in Rome was with the political authorities of the day? I think that's a pretty interesting question, don't you think, Aaron? Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. And there, that's just one of many questions that is very difficult to answer if you paint yourself into this corner, um, as I believe John uh, Pastor MacArthur has done, of making this a a black and white issue. And and while we disagree, I disagree with him in a black and white way about this issue, I was telling Todd earlier as well, if if your conscience at a moment when uh, when your exegesis and, and your practical application of theology is put to the test in this particular circumstance, if your conscience, if your God-given conscience, you're following the Lord, you're, you're, you, you really have a relationship with you, if for whatever reason your conscience tells you in a moment whether it's firing a gun or, you know, whatever, in a moment like this where you are in conflict with the gover- ruling authorities, if your conscience says this is not the right time, this is not the right place, I, I, I respect that, and I think, I think biblically that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But to point, paint it as black and white, this is not a Christian thing to do, that's where the disagreement is. And to, 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 to tell people that is not a Christian thing to do to protect innocent life essentially is what we're what we're getting down to or drilling down to here um that i that is where the real problem do, uh, problem lies essentially you're asking is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in in um endeavor to do uh not successfully but what he endeavored to do it was that wrong uh was any any go back through any, any history whatsoever standing against uh, up to tyrannical powers in the name of saving life or saving uh, your God-given liberties, it, any any of those were they ever uh, justified? Uh, and that's the question that is beholden to folks like Pastor uh, MacArthur and others who just hold this very solo scriptura view, which we talked about yesterday, of um, of this issue of standing up against the government or against tyranny. And there are no easy answers to those questions. I wish we could have him on the show. Maybe we can sometime to discuss this. He's been on he's been on this program before, Pastor MacArthur. Um, and so I, you know, I, I would hope that um, I would hope that there would be another side to this debate. Maybe another rebuttal as well. 
By the way, um, a question we asked earlier, we were going through the list of people that have been fired by Trump, and we found there was no common strain. And one of the names that, uh, that Rebecca in her email mentioned was Seb Gorka, and we, we were fumbling around. Oh, what yeah. We, yeah. What was it he I, was involved in? It was one of our, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Dave, just emailed me uh, about a story um, about Gorka being involved uh, with an alt-right uh, publication from Hungary or something. Uh, I'm looking at was, it right now. It was, uh, I did some research and I just didn't think it was super important. It looked like it was a power play, a cross between Gorka being pushed out and a power play from, from John Kelly as well. When he was first appointed, it's okay. Yeah. Cause I don't, I have to tell you, I don't know what alt right. Do you know what alt right means anymore? I, we're alt-right and nobody is. Yeah, everything's alt-right now and nothing is. You know, alt-right to me is 200 racists getting together in at a hotel in Washington, D.C., covered by 700 members of the media, yeah. all right? But apparently alt-right means everybody to the right of Jeb Bush is oh, alt-right now. Earlier this week, I, there was a column written about uh, the, the New York Times conservative columnist he's genuinely ross douthat Ro- yeah said ross douthat is out, has all right tendencies now so you know when you think of the alt right that's definitely the clan uh member you think of isn't it hmm. uh, this is from uh, cody ostendorf who says i grew up growing up on a farm in rural iowa it's always been my dream to farm this year i've been blessed to farm on my own for the first time however the more i deal with the government side of agriculture the more frustrated I become. I would like your help navigating the morality principles of government subsidies. First of all, as a farmer, about one-third of my property taxes go directly to subsidize a school district I don't live in and my children won't be attending. So I'm directly subsidizing a government entity and I don't have any voting rights to have a say on how that money is used. To ensure my crop against adverse weather conditions, there's only one insurance option, which is federal crop insurance. Half of that premium cost is subsidized. I checked to see if I could pay that half too, but the government doesn't allow you to pay it. You can imagine the looks I receive for even asking this question. If I need to take a claim, inevitable, the claim is at least half funded by subsidies. Then with Trump's trade war with China, they are offering a subsidy on half of my soybean crop to cover potential losses there uh, to make up for the commodity price decline. I can opt to not receive that by not turning in the paperwork, but yet it is due to bad government policies that the price declined and putting me at risk in the first place. I am required to subsidize that which I am unable to represent, and I almost need to accept some kind of subsidy uh, due to weather volatility. Then there's the whole other. Then there's the whole Trump tariff thing. So far, my conclusion is that bad government leads to justifying bad government, and government is thus bad. If the whole thing was just a couple hundred thousand dollars, I'd wave my middle finger to the system. However, the ramifications are worth tens of thousands of dollars to my fa- to my family. So how do you navigate this scenario? P.S. You can't hurt my feelings, so fire away. I'm going to give everybody a chance at this if you want. Here's my instant reaction to Cody. Is Cody, you have a, whatever moral, conscientious um, object, obstacles or provisions or requirements, maybe is a better word, that you or anybody else in this audience feels as if you had to exercise and or justify. You have lapped the field with them. I think you have more than met um, any of the requirements to be true to your convictions and beliefs. 
as a conscientious objector. So this is the reality of the situation for people like you. A, don't go into this business because there's no way around the system you're talking about. B, make the decision, therefore, that this, what, the life this provides for my family, the values that go along with this line of work, the service this line of work provides to my fellow man is of enough value to, therefore, justify taking part in such a shell game and racket of a system. And I don't think, especially given the links you have gone to, to try to find your way out of it, I don't believe anybody can stand here with a stone to condemn you for whichever one of these two choices you make. You have, you have clearly attempted to find a way out, of which there is not one, on purpose. Why? Because men, the number one goal of progressivism is always what? Power. Power. And the second goal of progressivism is control. Power and control. And the reason why they've wanted to have Medicare for all or universal health care, the reason why they did Obamacare as convoluted as they did, they could have simply just provided another federal subsidy like many states have for people that are low income or unemployed to buy into some high, have a highly subsidized, high premium, catastrophic system that insulates, you know, doctors. They could have done it that way to provide for the great unwashed who can't afford healthcare. But if they had had done that, then they couldn't have forced every 30-year-old man to pay for a pap smear. They wouldn't have the power and control that they really wanted. So they did it the Obamacare way instead. And that's what, and, and, and so if you have power over the food supply and if you have power over people's health care, you know what you have over them? Complete control. Complete control. That's right. Complete control. So even you can't be out of it because it won't give up control. It will not. And I've worked, um, I worked throughout the course of this year. One of the clients I consulted with is one of the wealthiest and most successful renewable fuels barons in America. And he put substantial money this year into trying to lobby the Trump administration into ending the renewable fuels standard and letting states simply say, you can do, you go as much corn as you want, sell as, and, and process it the way you want, Sell it for whatever you want. And if there's a market for people that want more of an ethanol blend, make as much money as you can, but you're on your own. And we're not going to have the government telling us what we can do anymore. And when he brought this idea to me, I told him the number one pushback you're going to get is from your own industry. Because they don't really want that kind of freedom. Because you know what happens if the government says you can sell as much corn as you want, you can process it. And any way you want, and you can put it, you can each state can decide for themselves which ethanol blends they do and don't want. Well, they're going to face competition too from people like the Cody Ostendorfs of the world. The market expands yeah. and it's harder to control. That's right. That's exactly right. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. His own lobbying, his own industry vehemently opposed this. And they wanted a 15% ethanol blend instead. 
which is it was it which which was, which was a nice boost pennies on the dollar compared to what his plan would have done. So the choice is clear, Cody. Uh, I think it's pretty cut and dried. You either decide you can't abide being a part of this racket and go do something else for a living, or you decide the service you can provide your fellow man and the life and values that go along, uniquely go along with an industry like farming and and what it requires of the family to be a part of it and the lessons and, and the ideals you'll pass on to your kids through that experience is worth putting up with the racket. I don't think there's a wrong answer, It's but it, those are the only two answers. I want to commend Cody. I grew up in small town Iowa as well, not on maybe as big of an operation as it sounds like he has, um, not even close to that size, but I'm very well familiar with with some of these issues, um, at least more than than maybe our, our, our typical um, person. And he's thought through this more and uh, with a, a more sober mind than I think I've ever heard articulated from somebody who's out maybe uh, in the field, as it were. Um, and so I want to commend Cody for that. This should be sobering for everybody. The system that we have in place right now is forcing Cody into the same dilemmas that it forces everybody from our elected representatives to um, us, uh, whether it's buying health care or what have you. It is a Kobayashi Maru. Either you walk away from everything that you know um, and can do or or maybe talented with, um, or you are forced to basically do utilitarian logic in justifying why you're doing this. And not that that's... Not that that would be morally wrong because you are providing a service to your fellow man, but at the same time, you're forced into doing some of some of these pretzels in your mind. That is the same. This is how the system gets to people in in Washington is the dilemma that um, that uh, Cody laid out for us as well. And so this is this should be sobering for everybody because that same system, if it can reach Cody just the same way as it does. Anybody in Washington, D.C., it's coming for you as well. You're going to have to be forced, if you haven't already, to make some of these difficult decisions and weigh some of these uh, matters in your mind the same way. I love it when the show takes up a fairly niche topic that we don't regularly discuss, and the answer is ultimately a fantastic for answer answer for most of what we talk about all the time. When I moved to Iowa 18 years ago and started at the Des Moines Register, I went to the Ag Report. I come from a dairy state to a largely corn state, and I wanted to uh, know, do you got anything I can read about why and how this state became all uh, corn and soybeans? And he gave me this textbook that I think was published in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, and it, it was absolutely fascinating and take me way beyond corn and soybeans to the fact that even though we romanticize uh, rural America, farming America, for many good reasons but we think that heartland of uh, uh, traditional values fundamentals it's as socialistic an enterprise ag as any institution we have in our country mm. well that's going to do it for feedback friday that's going to do it for friday here in general everybody have a great weekend we are back at it again on monday our final week of shows before we head out for christmas vacation until then john three seventeen. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.